Hi, I'm Paul Jay. Welcome to the Analysis.News podcast. The Trump administration has made one of its highest foreign policy objectives weakening and, if possible, bringing down the government and ruling circles of Iran. Making America great again includes strengthening its role as the global hegemon, which means being dominant in every region. Iran stands in the way of that. Iran was also the target of the Bush-Cheney administration, who could not abide a regional adversary with the capability of firing ballistic missiles at American troops and allies. Obama's deal with Iran to limit its ability to develop nuclear weapons technology was a break with the neocon agenda of regime change in Iran. It was an acceptance of Iran as a regional power, a role that was strengthened by the disastrous Iraq war. Trump abrogated that agreement and has even increased sanctions during the COVID crisis, which makes the suffering of the Iranian people worse. Trump on May 28th essentially scrapped the last remnants of its cooperation with the 2015 Iran nuclear deal by ending sanction waivers that allowed Russian, Chinese, and European companies to engage in civilian nuclear cooperation with Iran. On May 28th, Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard unveiled scores of new and upgraded defensive speedboats with a warning to the U.S. that it won't shy away from challenging American naval power. According to the semi-official Tasnim News Agency, the Guard said, Today we announced that wherever the Americans are, we're right there beside you, and in the near future you will sense us even more. Tensions almost spilled over into outright conflict after the U.S. killed Iranian General Soleimani. As we head into the November elections and a possible Trump defeat, what is the likelihood that Trump and the neocons around him will leave office without even more aggressive action against Iran? Of course, many wonder if Trump will leave office at all, with the pandemic and possible conflict with Iran as an excuse to postpone elections. Does Trump want to be a wartime president? Now joining us is Trita Parsi. He's the executive vice president of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft and the author of Treacherous Alliance, A Single Roll of the Dice and Losing an Enemy. Thanks for joining us, Trita. Thank you so much for having me. So, Trita, sum up a bit of the history of the Trump administration's approach to Iran and where we're at now. I think when the Trump administration first came in, they had several competing goals and approaches with Iran that have now coalesced into one very chaotic one. Uh, And at this point, I don't think really Trump is particularly paying attention to this. It's on under the... um, uh, uh, ownership of Pompeo and uh, other people at the State Department. But what I think um, happened in the beginning is that um, certain elements inside the government, as well as elements outside, such as um, uh, the Saudis, the UAE, and Prime Minister Netanyahu of Israel, convinced Trump that the reason why Obama's deal was so bad was because he gave up on American leverage too quickly. If Obama had just sanctioned Iran for another six months, 
the Iranians would have collapsed and the U.S. would have gotten a better deal. So if you, Mr. Trump, want to get a better deal, you need to go for sanctions and you need to go for maximum sanctions and just hold out longer than Obama did. And then you will be able to outdo the previous president. They knew quite well, however, that the sanctions actually would lead far more likely to a confrontation between the United States and Iran rather than it leading to Iran uh, capitulating to American demands. So their goal was actually to drive this towards a conflict, but they knew that that would not be a strong selling point with Trump. Instead, if they said that this is a strategy you need to go with in order to get a better deal, um, that would be much more effective with Trump. So Trump kind of got um, tricked into this. I mean, he doesn't have much of an understanding of foreign policy, and this seemed to also jive well and correspond to his experience as a uh, real estate mogul and, and how he probably dealt with competitors and contractors in Manhattan. Uh, so, you know, he went down with that road and uh, seemed to genuinely have had the expectation that this would lead to the Iranians coming to the table and begging for mercy, which of course is not at all what happened, which of course also was entirely predictable that it would not happen. At this point, he stuck. And Pompeo and Brian Hooks and, uh, and others at State Department that are driving the policy at this point seem to be pursuing not regime change as much as they are pursuing, on the one hand, regime collapse, and at a minimum, an effort to essentially uh, a scorched earth strategy to make sure that no future American president, particularly if you have a Biden presidency in a year from now, that none of them will be able to pick up anything that is left of the nuclear deal or anything of diplomacy with Iran. And essentially, if they don't get their regime collapse, at a minimum, they will make sure that the enmity between the United States and Iran is so locked in, so the future presidents cannot undo it. But the main goal, uh, the, the more uh, ambitious goal is to get regime collapse, meaning they just want the regime in Iran to collapse entirely. They don't want to replace it with anything. They don't want it to be replaced. They want chaos there because that will consume Iran internally, uh, significantly weaken it. And that's exactly the type of geopolitical outcome that the UAE, the Saudis, and Netanyahu is looking for. They're not looking for a new competent, democratic, West-leaning government in Iran, because such a government likely would be much more effective and would have Iran's power in the region rise, which is the opposite of what they want. They want Iran to look like Iraq looked like after the Iraq war. Exactly. I and mean, there's a reason why John Bolton still, uh, without flinching, says that the Iraq war was successful. He never cared about democracy in, uh, in Iraq, and I'm not claiming the others in the Bush administration did, but Bolton didn't even bother to pretend that he did. What he wanted was uh, a change in the geopolitical map. He wanted the chessboard to change. He wanted to make sure that Iraq would be eliminated from the chessboard, that it would no longer be able to pose a threat, a theoretical threat to the U.S. or any of the allies of the United States or the allies that Bolton cares about in the region. And that is exactly what the Iraq war did. Iraq, who used to be a very powerful nation, is hardly a nation any longer, hardly a functioning state at this point. And, and that's a very favorable outcome from his perspective, that it killed tons of people, that it completely destroyed much of the U.S.'s own credibility and other things is of much less concern. And of course, democracy and human rights was never a concern to begin with. 
There's a very interesting line in the project for New American Century, which for people that don't know, is a document created towards the end of the 1990s, uh, began with a letter to Clinton, uh, created by all the neocons, uh, many of whom wound up in power working with Cheney and Rumsfeld and such. And uh, the document, uh, quite a bit of, about, about, of the document is about regime change, both in Iran, but in Iraq and Syria. But in Iran, the real target they talk about, the, the thing that seems they object to most wasn't nuclear weapons or the development of such. It was Iran's ability to have ballistic missiles that could be used in the region, both against American allies and troops, as I said in the introduction. But there's no, no rationale why Iran should ever give up these ballistic missiles. They're not nuclear. Um, so, so that some uh, suggestion that a lot of the targeting of Iran's nuclear weapons program, which has never been proved that there actually ever was an Iranian nuclear weapons program, maybe some development of technology that could give them breakout capability, but even that's debatable. But what they do have is ballistic missiles. So what do you think of this idea that the real objection here is that Iran is too powerful a regional power as long as they have these ballistic missiles, thus you cause chaos and try to bring the, the, the whole house down. Well, it goes back to the balance of power again. And, uh, uh, you know, whether it's ballistic missiles or something else, they are not going to be satisfied until they have managed to make sure that Iran cannot pose a geopolitical challenge to the United States or some of its allies there. So, you know, for a lot of folks, uh, mindful of how non-advanced Iranian nuclear program was, it was uh, quite surprising to see how the nuclear program was presented as some sort of an existential threat. And as soon as that was taken off the table, then we saw how suddenly a lot of additional focus was now put on the ballistic missiles. You know, constantly something else to rally the international community in order to put Iran into the category of being a pariah state that needs to be eternally isolated. Um, I think, you know, with the ballistic missiles, certainly one can make the argument that that does make Iran more powerful. But again, we're talking about a situation in which the ballistic missile program of Iran is far less advanced than that of the Israelis. The Saudis have both more and more advanced, uh, longer range missiles than the Iranians do. The Israelis, of course, have nuclear weapons. None of these things actually are about the programs themselves. It's all about making sure that you have some sort of a rallying cry that you can sell to the rest of the world in order to mobilize forces and push for some form of uh, isolation or other ways of weakening the country, uh, driving it towards a conflict in order for it not to be able to be a challenge to the United States or some of these countries geopolitically. And that's why I think, you know, the biggest threat you know, uh, you know, as much as Netanyahu talked about the nuclear program being an existential threat to Israel, what really was an existential threat from his perspective was not the nuclear program. The real existential threat was a deal between the United States and Iran that ended Iran's isolation, ended the sanctions, ended its pariah status, and ended the opportunity to have the rest of the country rally around some form of a conflict with Iran, some sort of point of conflict with Iran. That's why there was such a desperate effort from his end to destroy the deal. He, of course, failed at first, but eventually he succeeded with the election of Trump and someone who was much more 
um, naive about uh, foreign policy and much more open to being uh, manipulated because that's exactly what uh, Netanyahu did when it came to the Trump administration. And I think it's important that one of the most important funders of Trump is Sheldon Adelson. And Sheldon Adelson sits at the, uh, the, 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 an honorary seat practically in the Israeli cabinet. It's so close to Netanyahu, or at least was. There's some apparently conflict now, but certainly in terms of basic policy objectives, Adelson has been on the same page. Adelson was on a panel in New York, I think it was in 2013, where he said, perhaps we should send a message to Iran by actually blowing, uh, dropping a nuclear weapon in an Iranian desert to send them a message. So these are the people that Trump is allied with. Correct. Um, and Adelson has been, you know, as you mentioned, he has some sort of a fallout with Netanyahu, it appears like, but nevertheless, he has been one of the main funders of an effort to get a war going between the United States and Iran. And we can rest assured it's not because he is terrified of the idea that Iran is not a, pro a democracy and that the Iranian people's human rights are being abused as they are right now. This has nothing to do with that. This has everything to do uh, with the geopolitical situation. And Adelson's uh, loyalty and adherence to the far right of Israeli politics. I, I want to add a point to the ballistic missiles issue, which is I, I don't think there's any possibility one could see Iranian ballistic missiles as anything but defensive, which is what it was in the case of the assassination of General Soleimani. They, you know, threw a few missiles at an American base that seems well targeted not to actually hit anybody. But it's that ability to counterattack that the Americans don't like. It's not that there's any uh, actual aggressive threat from Iran. It would be insane. What, what could they possibly well, I mean, gain? But such ballistic a missiles have a deterrence capability precisely because you can retaliate. Uh, Iran doesn't have much of an air force. Uh, uh, and in fact, one of the decisions the Iranians made after being under all of those different sanctions was that they realized they simply cannot compete with the UAE and Saudi Arabia and others when it comes to building an air force, they can spend so much more money on it than the Iranians could. So if there's anything they could do and should do would be to invest in something that is much cheaper. Incidentally, that is uh, a line or a direction they went in that the Israelis had encouraged the Shah of Iran to do back in the late 1970s. They told the Shah that literally you are not gonna be able to be a modern military unless you have um, a ballistic missile program. And back then the U.S. refused to sell the Iranians some of the advanced missiles the U.S. had. So the Iranians went to the Israelis to get them. You had a web a webinar the other day on Saudi-American uh, relations. And there was talk about the importance of American arms sales to Saudi Arabia. I actually thought the point could have been hit a little harder in the sense that I think the quid quo pro is that if the Americans make sure the Saudi monarchy remains in power, the Saudi monarchy will continue to buy American weapons almost for its own sake. It's a way of just transferring wealth back to the uh, arms manufacturing sector. It's not, as, as someone said on your panel, the Saudis can't even defend themselves even though they have endless amounts of arms. But how, does, how do the Saudis justify such arms expenditures without almost war with Iran? I mean, the there needs to be this almost war and, and tension uh, to, to justify not just the arms sales to Saudi Arabia, but all massive amounts of money that's spent 
on U.S. military with Iran in mind. Yeah, and I think another thing that kind of came out of that conversation, though, is that, you know, if we believe that we actually don't have a lot of leverage with Saudi Arabia, uh, despite these arms sales, well, then we also shouldn't have had the arms sales because a lot of the arguments for the arms sales is, oh, we have an ability to make sure that they are less brutal in Yemen and, and really quite preposterous arguments like that. But if we at the same time admit that we don't have any leverage, that also means that the weapon sales are not providing us any leverage at all. And it comes back to your point that this is just a naked um, uh, money-making uh, 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 venture that is going on over here with absolutely no regard whatsoever, whether it is destabilizing the region, uh, killing people, and eventually coming back to haunt the United States itself. Well, I'm working on a project with Daniel Ellsberg, and he's he's got this quote on the development of the nuclear weapons program. He says he's come to the conclusion that coming out of World War II, the nuclear weapons program was essentially a commercial subsidy for the aerospace industry. That had that uh, commercial aviation wasn't enough to sustain these companies that had grown so big during World War II. And one of the ways to fund them was to create a, new, uh, a Cold War, that the Cold War mm. was essentially a way to justify this propping up of this uh, sector of the economy. And, and in doing so, they, they risk Armageddon. They know they yeah. risk the end of the world through nuclear war. And, but the com commercial imperative asserts itself. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. The, uh, so what do you make of, we're going into these November elections and Trump, it's not looking good for Trump. This pandemic is, uh, even, even in his base, I think people are starting to understand how uh, disastrous Trump's attitude towards the pandemic was. Um, there's a real chance, uh, no more than chance, I would say if, if the election was held soon, I think he would lose. I know others don't agree with that, but whatever, it's, polling is certainly showing he's behind. Um, how desperate does that get and how big a role do you think Iran might play in that? Well, it's, um, it, it is interesting because, you know, the pattern with Trump, of course, is that he's willing to do anything to retain power. Um, and, you know, he does have instincts in which he doesn't want to go to war with Iran. But once it seems to be benefiting him electorally, he's certainly willing to set aside those instincts. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's his impulses that are more important than his instincts. And I would say that what is stunning to me is that he's really chosen to go down the path of making China the big enemy in this uh, upcoming election and, and taking some very, very severe measures there. I mean, there is definitely a strong belief amongst a lot of people in his circle, including those who otherwise want to get out of the Middle East, et cetera, that the real you know, uh, great power competition between the US and China is the real thing of the century and that previous administrations have just not been tough enough on those issues. Well, I'm wondering if he really goes down that path in the manner that he's done so far um, as to whether, you know, a war with Iran or enmity with Iran actually would provide him with much additional utility um, because, you know, China is going to be enough to chew on in, in, in that sense. Um, so if he goes down that path, I, I do wonder if, you know, he's going to be needing from an electoral standpoint to ratchet things up with Iran in the manner that he had done before. Well, you can't, can't push things too far with China 
because there's not a heck of a lot he can do to China without wrecking further the American economy. You can't risk an actual conflict, although Steve Bannon has actually advocated military confrontation in the South China Sea, but it's hard to see that. I guess what I'm most... The Sorry, strategic documents that they're releasing, et cetera, and the manner in which they're talking about China, some of the measures they're doing, some of the legislative stuff, all, of course, very much benefiting the arms industry. Um, it, it, even if he only would like it to be a rhetorical uh, tool at this point, it nevertheless does two things. A, it makes it much more difficult for the United States and China to go back to something that it resembles some form of a collaborative, constructive uh, relationship in which, of course, there's going to be significant areas of tensions and disagreement, but you will deal with those in a mature way rather than uh, jumping towards conflict. And secondly, the rhetorical thing may be sufficient for him, so he may not need uh, further escalation with Iran from an electoral standpoint. His problem with that, and we saw that in the ad that Joe Biden did, is Biden can actually outflank him from the right on China, which I think is just horrible that Biden does that, uh, you know, to kind of up the Cold War ante against Trump. But, but he can. Uh, on Iran, it's different because Biden supports the nuclear agreement. Um, just to put a, I certainly wouldn't minimize the uh, uh, rhetorical and other kinds of antagonism he'll create with China. But I also do want to say that I really would not rule out some kind of phony um, uh, terrorist attack of some kind. Uh, the, the Vietnam War started with a phony uh, Gulf of Tonkin incident. Uh, the Iraq War was, uh, if you believe Bob, Senator Bob Graham and his joint congressional investigation into the uh, 9-11 events that not only was Saudi Arabia directly involved in it and on that panel you had Madawi uh, Rashid's her last name I think is it? Al Rashid yes. Al Rashid I mean she came right out and said it that the Saudis were involved in 9-11 and I think if you look at the evidence it's it's pretty clear that Bandar was a tool of that Um, and the um, so so this use of these kinds of false flag as people use that term uh, I'm really concerned that if if he gets desperate, then something that tries to point at Iran is is very possible. I, I would not disagree with you on that at all. And, you know, some sort of October surprise, uh, because if he were to do something, the effectiveness of it would be relatively close to the elections. It would not be something that he would do at this point, uh, because at the end of the day, uh, you know, the first reaction people tend to have is some form of rallying around the flag, standing by whoever the leader is. Uh, We saw that even with Corona, uh, despite his tremendous mishandling of the uh, pandemic early on, his numbers actually initially went up. So if that's the effect he wants, he will do something, you know, closer to November or September rather than ratching that up now. So maybe maybe the the objective is not actually a real war against Iran as it is another excuse to postpone the elections. Either that or, you know, a a small confrontation or something that once again, he can utilize whipping up uh, nationalist sentiments in the country in order to be able to advance um, uh, his own uh, electoral standing. Because again, we we saw that even with uh, the pandemic early on, his numbers went up despite massive mismanagement. Right. 
Okay, we only have a few minutes left because I know you have to go. Just talk a little bit about what's going on inside Iran now, vis-a-vis the pandemic and the politics. Yes, yeah, so you know, the Iranians have had a, a tremendous amount of difficulty with the pandemic for numerous reasons. First of all, they themselves have mishandled it, as you know, at this stage, almost every country has early on. Um, but uh, they have also stuck with another issue that is more heavily sensed there than it is over here, which is the sanctions impact on the country had already put so much of the population in or very close to poverty. Under those circumstances, to completely close down the country, um, you know, there was significant disagreement within the government on how to handle that, um, precisely because, uh, you know, the degree to which uh, a lot of people would suffer economically and actually may end up, I mean, that's how bad it is. They may end up dying out of hunger rather than out of uh, COVID. But all of that also got very quickly politicized because you had elements in the hardline parts of the government that actually wanted to have a close down. They wanted to see a worsening of the economic situation in order to put all of the blame on the Rouhani government. Uh, and as you know, there's upcoming presidential elections in Iran and, uh, and, and getting rid of, uh, obviously they will get rid of Rouhani nevertheless, but making sure that there will be a conservative supreme leader as it is right now, a conservative parliament, which is a result of what happened in the last parliamentary elections just a couple of months ago, which had very, very low participation and hardly any non-conservatives that were even allowed to run. Add on to that a conservative president and they have completely consolidated their power. How close is the country to what you said the Trump administration, and I shouldn't say just Trump administration, because there's plenty of anti-Iranian hawks in the Democratic Party. This is not certainly exclusively uh, Republican by any means. Um, and, and we know um, Schumer and others in the, in the Democratic Party were opposed to the nuclear agreement. Um, but how close is the country to this kind of chaos they want? I don't think it is at all as close as the Trump administration would like to believe. In fact, Trump believed that uh, six, nine months after he imposed sanctions in May 2018, uh, that the country would collapse. And, and that was partly because that's what you know, he had been told by the Israelis. Uh, they're not there yet at all. And in fact, you know, Venezuela's situation economically is much, much worse than it is in Iran, and the Maduro government is still there. So the idea that through that type of economic collapse, you can get rid of the government is quite fanciful and a lot of wishful thinking in it. Um, but that doesn't mean that it's not a worthwhile goal or exercise from their perspective, from the perspective of you know, the hardline elements in the Trump administration or the groups in Washington that seem to see everything eye to eye with Netanyahu. Because in the process, you are nevertheless weakening the country and that ultimately is the objective. I remember very clearly back in 2009 how hardline elements in Washington were actually quite worried that the Green Movement would succeed and that Amin Hussein Mosavi would become president. Because how are you going to uh, isolate a country if it's led by a government that is seen as having the support of the population, seen to be uh, a, you know, a, a strong enemy of the most reactionary anti-democratic elements inside of that government. Um, so you know, the worst thing from their perspective is actually a reasonable government Iran that can actually help it break out of its isolation because that's the opposite of what they want. They want an isolated country that gets weakened and weakened and as a result, shifts the balance of power in the region away from Iran and towards themselves. 
meaning the U.S., the Saudis, and the Israelis. And the UAE. Right. All right. Thanks very much for joining us, Trita. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for joining us on the analysis.news podcast. <laughs> 